Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Education. I'm Trevor Matea, one of your hosts on the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Justin Wells about his book, Transforming Schools, Using Project-Based Learning, Performance Assessment, and Common Core Standards. Justin, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. Um, I was wondering if we could begin the interview by having you tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, Sure. I... um... I think the first thing that I say when people ask me uh, who I am and what I do is I say that I am an English teacher. Um, and it's something that's very important to um, uh, how I see myself and what I bring, bring to the work. And I started being an English teacher in, I think it was 2003. And I was really lucky to come out. I was coming out of a, a program, master's credential program at Berkeley uh, focusing on secondary English and uh, and I landed in um, the first Envision school, the first year of the first Envision school with um, a, the founder, co-founder Bob Lenz was looking for teachers. At the time he was looking for teachers who are also practicing artists, which was an interesting kind of uh, part of it, early part of the vision. And I happened to be a practicing sing- singer-songwriter um, and lover of literature and anyway, got lucky and, and got the job and uh, didn't know anything about project-based learning or, or other, you know, coalition of essential school ideas, et cetera. Um, but I kind of landed under a great, uh, visionary, uh, who also had this amazing project-based learning master named Tony Harris, who's a guy I like to talk about in the book. Um, so that was my, um, um, that, that's kind of where I landed and just had this amazing experience of, of learning about uh, project-based learning, deeper learning, performance assessment. I think that's a term that came on a little bit later, but um, it all made sense to me, um, partly because of experiences I'd had earlier, and I just thrived. And um, so I've been with Envision um, uh, off and on um, since that time. Um, my one other really formative experience um, was with a group of folks at Stanford University who helped Envision build some of its uh, performance assessment system and the rubrics and stuff that, that are attached to our system. And we, the teachers, would go down there in the summers and help this great team of academics kind of um, build what you'll hear about me talk about later, our, our portfolio defense system. That led to um, me working down with this team at Stanford. The, this, it's, the acronym is SCALE, stands for the Stanford Center for Assessment, Learning, and Equity. And I worked with them for almost two years at one point as sort of a practicing ELA teacher voice on this team of, of PhDs. And um, that really was another formative experience for me in terms of just deep rooting in the concepts of performance assessment. Um, I happen to have been involved in the prototyping of the performance tasks for the Smarter Balance test mm-hmm. and um, and learned a lot, <laughs> good and bad, in, in, <laughs> in that experience with the uh, industrial testing complex. Um, anyway, I returned to Envision in the last couple of years. There's now a, a consulting branch of Envision called Envision Learning Partners. Mm-hmm. Um and now I have the real honor to travel and work with um, generally teaching uh, teams of, of teachers and, and school leaders who are implementing some aspect of, of um, redesign, deeper learning, uh, project-based learning, et cetera. Um, and so I'm learning a lot now on, on that side of things. So I, I failed to mention earlier, you, you have two co-authors. Um, so you wrote this book with Bob Lenz and also with Sally Kingston. 
um, who at, at that time were all working with Envision Schools and Envision Learning Partners. I was wondering if you could tell us um, why the three of you decided to write Transforming Schools. The, um, Bob, Bob was certainly reaching that point um, in his career. He'd been sort of leading Envision now for over a, a decade, and of course before that he had you know, uh, really made a name for himself in the late nineties at, um, at a, at a small school within a school called Academy X at, uh, Sir Francis Drake High School in, um, Northern California. And, um, so, and, and he had just had some great mentors and stuff himself. And he's a real, real visionary. And so he, he founded Envision to kind of just evolve his ideas even further. Uh, as I said, I was kind of lucky to just to be show up and be part of that story. Mm-hmm. But Bob was certainly reaching the point where he was kind of ready to get down on paper, um, you know, the, the story of Envision and also, um, yeah, kind of kind of etching his his ideas. Um, he started talking with me because um, he was running a large organization and. Um, and also, I think he respected um, my experience as a teacher in the system and also my ability to kind of, uh, you know, write about these ideas in a, in a, in a cogent way. So um, we were actually, the two of us were even talking about the idea and <laughs> starting to do this when, and we didn't even know how to approach it, when Bob was approached by um, Wiley. Um, if he was, had any interest in doing some writing. So it was neat that we'd already chatted about it. So we, the two of us decided we'd, we'd in our off time, sit down and do this. Um, we were both so busy, it eventually became clear that we needed uh, more help. And um, we had been working with Sally. She was the head of uh, Sally Kingston. She was the head of Envision Learning Partners at the time I came to back to Envision. Mm-hmm. And um, she just... Uh, uh, a great communicator and um, believer in, in this set of ideas. So, you know, I would say about two thirds of the way into our writing of the book, Sally also came in and, and gave us the, the extra bit of juice that we needed to get across the finish line. Uh, and we were really great to uh, fortunate to have her uh, join us. So, so we ended up um, having the three of us involved um, and uh, it was great to get it done. It was <laughs> hard to do in, in the midst of everything else going on in life. But oh, I can imagine. Um, before we kind of jump into the particulars of uh, what's in the book, I was wondering if we could kind of unpack the subtitle a little bit. So the book is called Transforming Schools Using Project-Based Learning, Performance Assessment, and Common Core Standards. So uh, many of our listeners may not be aware with these topics. So I was wondering if you could tell us, what are the Common Core State Standards what are project-based learning and performance assessments? And how do you see all these things as being connected? Sure. And <clears throat> this is an interesting, uh, this is an interesting story because it, uh, it also speaks a little bit to, um, you know, the give and take with the publisher and, and how we kind of settle on these. It's, a, it's definitely a long-winded title and there's a sense in which we're kind of cramming everything into that part. Um, Transforming schools was certainly sort of Bob's primary phrase that he wanted in there. I think that's what he sees the book as really describing. Um, but we wanted to have a little more detail in there. Um, I would say that um, project-based learning and performance assessment are really, and, and what is the intersection between these two ideas is something that the book really tries to grapple with. Um, the Common Core Standards, and I'll talk about those in just a second, was something that was really important for the publisher to be in there, <laughs> mm. and and um, and it was, and I think even now uh, we we had warned Wiley. We said, you know, <laughs> because at that point the Common Core Standards were starting to become politically controversial, which was no surprise to us who have been in this business for a long time, um, and and. So we were wondering, like, do we really want to have, do we really want to put that in there and kind of make a play on something that for all we know, you know, next presidency could be off the table. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but the, the, the publisher was insistent. They know that. And I, and I get why I used, I come from the publishing business. I, I was a project editor for a publisher before I became a teacher. Um, but you know, what's, what's on the cover and the spine, um, you know, at the bookstores is important. And, um, this was a common core standards, which are this, um, you know, new, new set of, of really mainly focused on reading, writing, and mathematics, um, set of standards that were developed by a, a group of states, um, consortium of, of state uh, education officers have long been talking about how it would be better to have some standards that, that worked across state lines. Mm-hmm. Um, and this idea and the writing of them kind of was emerging in the, the late 2000s. Um, it has unfortunately come to be seen as a federal set of standards um, when the Obama administration, you know, used its race to the top money to uh, incentivize um, folks to incorporate those standards, among uh, along with a lot of other things, were 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 a part of that race to top grant money. But um, and they didn't even name Common Core standards themselves. They said, you know, college and career readiness standards need to be adopted, and that puts you in the play for for this grant money. So, no surprise, there these standards were developed. Lots of states were directly involved in developing them. So we saw a wave of like, you know, 45 or more states adopt these in short order um, around the time of, um, I think it was Obama's midterm. And um, a lot of us, I remember even saying, and I was like, man, this is kind of happening under the radar. Um, I won't be surprised if when after this election, um, people go, hey, where did this come from? Right. And, start view, and start viewing it with some skepticism. Uh, and, and, and under some scrutiny. And that's, of course, what's happened. And there's definitely, um, you know, I think there are some legitimate critiques of the process by which these were adopted. But a lot of that critique comes from comes from people not being fully familiar with with what they are. I think most of us who see them feel like there's a lot of positive things about what they say. Um I think they are more descriptive than prescriptive of where education has been headed for a while. Um, and that, and simply I would say that more of a focus on identifying what key skip, what key college and career readiness skills um, are and, and naming those skills and less what I call verbs. What are the verbs of how we get students ready? And the center of gravity is less, on the noun phrases, right? Like they need, you need to know this set of facts and this set of facts and this set of facts. Um, that's been going on. That shift has been going on for a long time. And I've always maintained that Common Core is describing that shift, not prescribing that shift. Um, that said, it's been controversial. Lots of states have backed off. Um, the testing regimens that attend that um, are also in controversy. But Still, there are millions of, of children who are now um, operating in schools that are attending to common core state standards. And for that reason, I think the publisher knows that this is a big transition. People need to figure out how to uh, be responsible about attending to these new standards. And for that reason, we, for that reason, it's in the title. Now, I would say that the beautiful thing is that, you know, performance assessment, uh, um, and some degree, even project-based learning, um, are you know great things to do before the standards. And now the standards are in place; they've almost made those uh, pedagogical shifts even more urgent because you can't read the standards without realizing there's a need for performance assessment. And um, and I maintain as well that, that there's a need for project-based learning as well. One thing I was going to ask you about um, is you, you talk about the transition between or from nouns to verbs uh, with the state standards moving into, uh, in most often cases, the Common Core standards. Um, are project-based learning and performance assessments um, verb-oriented classroom activities? Yes. I, 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 that's for me, has always been a, a nice way to think about this. Um, 
let me let me start with performance assessment first because I mm-hmm. think that and in some ways I feel like the order is wrong on the cover of the book. Okay. Um, we very deliberately talk about performance assessment first and establishing what I call a school-wide performance assessment system. And once you do, then you realize that project-based learning is a powerful means to the end. And the end being students successfully meeting the challenges that you've set for them through performance assessment. So I find that project-based learning can be not good when it's just done as an end in itself, right? Oh, we kids should do projects. Let's do projects. Um, but first, we need to establish what what is evidence that students are meeting the skill standards and, and able to meet the kinds of challenges that we've set for them. And I think the first the first real thesis of this book is that a school needs to collectively establish kind of what are the, um, what's our graduate profile? Like what can our Mm -hmm. students, um, when they, when they reach the end of their journey here, what are they not just able to know, but also able to do the knowing is also important. And, and, and they, and there's, there's not this hard line between knowing and doing, but, um, we need to attend, we need to define both. Like what are they, what do they need to know and what do they need to be able to do? That's step one. And, and we talk about that as there's a phrase that's, that is commonly used around that now called the graduate profile. It's kind of different than a school mission statement because it's more about the learner and what the learn and mm-hmm. what the learner can know and do. So step one is establishing that. Now, when people do sit down and establish that, they're often coming up with not just nouns, but verbs, <laughs> right? Students and, and common course filled with these. They need to, and here's where you see these academic power words, like they need to be able to analyze something. They need to be able to you know, propose a solution to a problem. They need to be able to um, um, you know, evaluate, um, et cetera. These are a lot of these, these are, are old concepts from Bloom's taxonomy and things like that, you know, all very recognizable. Um, but um, the, performance assessment is basically a kind of assessment that we use to sort of tell us more about what where students are in terms of their skills. The, the, the metaphor that I think is really helpful for people um, is the drive, how we get our driver's license um, in this country, in various states in this country. Um, it requires both knowing and doing. And we've got two kinds of assessments for that. It's not that one's more, more or less important than the other, but we use the permanent exam with a multiple choice test to measure our, our uh, knowledge of the traffic laws, content knowledge. But no one gives a license based just on that, right? We also need to observe someone drive um, by watching them drive. And, um, and I, like to feel, I like to see that as kind of a performance assessment side of the equation. And one thing that really helped me as a teacher was just to always be asking, like, what's the driver's test in my course? Am I just giving permit exams or do I know what the, what the sort of real driving skill is here? And am I, am I attending to that? Am I giving students a chance to practice that? Do they know that they're practicing and getting better at that? And by the end of the course, do I have some solid evidence that they can um, drive the car, not just fill out that multiple choice test? So that's the quick on, on what performance assessment is. And we believe a division that a school needs to be built around a performance assessment system where it's really systematically laying out like these are the skills and here's the places that we're measuring these skills. Um, in addition to, um, the content knowledge work. And I'll just finish by saying that's when, you know, and we, in the book, we go in this order. That's when you see that, oh my gosh, if this is our set of skills we need, if kids need to know how to collaborate and uh, manage, you know, deadlines over long periods of time and be able to communicate flexibly and, and answer questions on the spot and all kinds of different things that we've targeted, that's when we realize, how can we do this without project-based learning? 
that seems to be the mode of learning where kids get to practice some of these skills that we've said are important. It's not that we do 20, PBL 24-7, but if we don't do it, how else are the kids going to learn um, some of these uh, things that we've said are important? And um, so I, I want to make sure that, I, that I'm hearing you correctly. So the performance assessments come first. And project-based learning is is a means to achieve those rather than a means in and of itself. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. In fact, I, you know, now do some, one of the, I have a, a quota on a slide, or not even a quota, it's just a phrase that I really want people to attend to when I'm doing workshops and stuff. But, you know, project-based learning must always justify itself. Mm-hmm. And... And I say that as a challenge to, to, to school teachers as designers. I think that that's really what we all need to be. We need to be uh, designers. Um, I'm a huge believer in project-based learning. Like, uh, it's become my, my life's work in, in terms of advocating for it. But that said, I hold myself to a high standard as to how I'm using it and when I'm using it and always able to explain um, First of all, to the students, like here is why we're using some project-based learning techniques um, or doing the project now because of X, right? Because it's going to, because it's the way to help us do uh, really well with this challenge. Um, So it's really important to me that project-based learning uh, defines itself as means to an end. Well, and it sounds like the assessments are the way of, of holding teachers accountable for designing high quality projects. I'm a, because I'm an English teacher, perhaps I, I, I have this, um, um, I don't know. I, I bristle a little bit over, over jargon and, mm-hmm. and unfortunately I'm in education and I'm just bombarded with jargon constantly <laughs> <laughs> and I have to use it constantly. And, and I would, and I often say to folks, let's, Let's just be clear that project-based learning and performance assessment are both jargon, mm-hmm. and and to that degree, we, we you know it's, some, it's often nice just to unpack them a little bit and demystify them. Um, project-based learning, from I mean, pro, a performance assessment for me is um, it's just basically establishing a kind of a challenge. In some ways, we could just say it's an assignment, right? <laughs> right. Um, it's just um, a big assignment. It's a big. It can often just be a big assignment, and I and I and I do appreciate people who have been at this a long time who look at some of these new phrases that come down the pipe and be like, "Come on!" <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> we've been giving big assignments for a long time, right? This mm-hmm. is not new, and I and I agree with that. But but I do think that the that the concept is useful in the sense that. It reminds us of that performance part of it reminds us that we're looking for a particular kind of assignment design. Right. One that um, is targeting and, and measuring skills that are complex. And with that complexity comes some tinkering you need to do around getting the right kind of assignment and also getting the right way to assess the assignment, um, etc. And I think that a lot of the trick with performance assessment is just um, what I call balancing the equation, really figuring out what it is you want to measure, and then really being sure that the evidence that you get from the task you've designed is really aligning with that target that you established in the beginning. And I find, even myself, I've been doing this a long time, I find that my first draft of a performance assessment is not fully aligned to itself, right? It's, it's, it takes a little uh, twiddling. Um, you realize, oh, my gosh, I'm getting more plot summary out of this assignment than I am true analysis. So I'm not really it's, – it's a great measurement of plots of summarization, which is a great skill, but it's not really measuring their analytical skills. I've got to do some tweaking here. Getting this performance assessment, establishing these challenges, again, to de-jargonize the term. What's the challenge? Is it the right challenge? Project-based learning, then, is to me just a set of techniques. I don't need all of them every time, um, but they remind me of, of a set of best practices that, that help with getting the students to meet that challenge well. 
um, what I call it is their journey to success. Once I, once I know what the challenge is, how am I designing what I call a journey to success? And PBL is where I look to, to keep me honest and, and, and keep me sharp around designing powerful journeys to success on challenges that I've established. Now, that doesn't mean that the challenge always needs to be like the last day of the project or whatever. I find that most rich projects actually build in more than one challenge, more than one performance assessment, and they're nested at certain strategic moments through the project um, based on the, on the, the sort of journey for the student. Um, so, so where they fit in time can be, it just really depends on, on the nature of the project itself. Um, while we're on this topic of commonly used educational vocabulary, um, I, w- I wanted to talk with you about another slightly different term called deeper learning. And so on Envision School's website, you're listed as a deeper learning coach. And Envision is part of a deeper learning, capital D, capital L, network of schools. And that, that includes High Tech High in San Diego, where I am, EL Education, New Tech Network, and, and all of these various school organizations. So I was wondering, uh, you know, what is deeper learning and how does this approach of Envision that you've described, what, what makes that unique in this community of other schools striving, striving to do similar things? Yeah. Deeper learning I, is uh, a term that has come to be used. To, I, I think really it's become the term associated with a set of organizations that are kind of approaching education design in maybe for lack of a better word, very progressively um, right now. It, the, the ideas go way back to Dewey and, and uh, probably even before him. You know, there have been educational philosophers for a long time, going back to the Greeks, um, who look at the sort of current system and size it up and say, hey, this doesn't quite make sense to me. If we really want X, we should be doing Y. Um, and I think Dewey is, of course, such a key voice in the American context. And, of course, those ideas, really, again, had a... Had a Renaissance with um, the Coalition for Central Schools and um, Ted Sizer's work. A lot of the founders of these various deeper learning organizations, as you know, Trevor, um, you know, come from that that era of the coalition movement. Mm-hmm. And um, and now we see uh, sort of another, I think, kind of Renaissance around that that movement. With these various organizations, you named a bunch of them: High Tech High, um, Expeditionary Learning, New Tech Network, Asia Society, Envision, etc. And I don't know exactly all the dates here, but I know that Bob Lenz and some of the other, um, you know, key leaders in these organizations were realizing that that there was a lot in common. Um, and at some point along the way, um, the Hewlett Foundation. Um, became interested in sort of like what's what's our play as a philanthropic organization? What's our area of focus going to be? And um, I don't know what or, what the exact order of operations, but ultimately, um, the, Hewlett made a made a really strong play that that we want to uh, devote our resources to this concept of deeper learning. And these are some organizations that you know we're we're going to fund initially um, to promote their work. And so I think that that capital D, capital L even came from, you know, certain early meetings and conferences that, that brought together some of these folks. And why, why deeper learning instead of something, something else like, I don't know, project-based learning or, or, or even performance assessment, et cetera. I think it's because there was just a recognition that those were all facets of something larger that, that folks had in common. And, um, Hewlett, I think, went ahead and took a crack at, you know, naming, um, you know, certain principles of, of deeper learning and used that term. I think, I think it was just an attempt to kind of get a little bit higher altitude over all these good ideas that were happening out there and, and putting them under one rubric. Um, I think that the, uh, you know, the real claim made by the, by the term, though, is that, um, 
learning, you know, let's, let's, let's design schools with the learning sticks <laughs> more than sometimes it feels, right? Like, you know, that we all know that feeling of kind of studying for a test and, uh, you know, a couple of weeks later, you can barely regurgitate that content. And a, and a lot of our system promotes that kind of design. Um, being able to look back and remember um, at, at what, you know, what you really pulled out. I think, you know, understanding by design principles too, you know, Wiggins and McPhee's work, I think has been seminal in all this too, around like, what's the deep concept that you're taking away from this learning journey? And what's the, what's the stuff that was more on the surface and attending more to that deeper stuff is I think the, the, the focus of the movement. Um, you, you just alluded to your design principles and I'm also making a connection with something you said earlier is you want to take something, uh, that's maybe jargony or abstract like project-based learning and, and break it down, um, into things that, that anyone can recognize. Can you elaborate on these, uh, for us and, and the rationale for envision it, um, for having these principles? Sure. Yeah. And thanks for asking about that. It, it, there was a, I think that's one of the parts of the book that was, um, particularly fun to surface. I don't, we didn't actually have that list of principles going into the writing of the book. Um, and it's actually not necessarily a set of principles that's up on, the, uh, up on a wall in envision anywhere. But, but as we jumped into um, really trying to tell this story uh, um, and, and really get at what was the essence of envision's approach, um, I just started feeling like there was a need to name some, some themes that I saw um, in how we, and how we did approach the work. So this is that, that list of principles is not a, is not, doesn't come from Hewlett um, or even from something codified within envision. Um, in some ways it was, you know, my role in this book was to really, um, step out from my own involvement a little bit, really listen to, you know, to what I heard Bob saying um, about how he saw, saw this coming together, as well as make some observations in my long-time role as a teacher. Like, what did I feel was kind of binding this, this stuff together? So it ended up being just kind of a, a list that I, that uh, emerged through the, through the writings. Like, here's what I'm noticing. And, um, and it was fun to kind of like get that out on paper. Um, but yeah, I, I guess I wanted, I, I come at this very much as a humanist. I sometimes feel like what I love about um, this movement is that it's not just, I, I, I'm, I worry a little bit about the, the, the education reform movement is so, can, can seem so material, right? Like it's just focused on, and we are in the era of big data and there's, you know, there's important metrics that we need to study and it, it has helped us surface a lot of things like uh, inequality in education and, and where schools are at in, the, in terms of their performance. Um, but, you know, reducing education to just like, what are the sort of literacy and numeracy scores of a given population is, is not attending to all the things that, students need, young people need from uh, an education. And what I have loved about the deeper learning community is I feel like what they have in common is that they're, they're all working toward improving school quality and, and educational quality through, you know, through metrics and, 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 and hard numbers but they're also attending to uh, students' social emotional journey. Mm -hmm. um, you know, whether it's, you know, you look at high tech high and big picture and, and new tech and, and in EL and these various organizations. And there's so many more too, that are part of the larger national communities we see from that deeper learning conference. But what I think that is really great is that there is a, there's, we're looking at the, the full human being and, and looking at like, what's this, what's the, social emotional journey through all of these numbers, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and so I felt like that list of deeper learning principles, insist on depth over breadth, 
And my favorite one is deep. And I love this one. It's just a shorthand for deeper learning definition for me personally is deeper learning is learning. You can tell a story about mm-hmm. maybe this is me coming from this as a, as an English teacher, but I really feel that if students can, um, I think the human beings make sense of their experience through storytelling. And if you're designing educational experiences that, that help students process what occurred um, with the storytelling arc, then that's a huge part of making things deep and sticky. Um, that's what I love about project-based learning is that it kind of takes stuff that could just be, um, you know, a set of content that, that could just be doled out in these isolated lessons and measured in some sort of unit test. And, but it all seems discrete. And it basically kind of synthesis, synthesizes that together into something that follows the, the, the same arc that stories do. Like, what's the inciting moment? Where's the rising action? Here was the challenge or climax. Um, when kids are able to tell those kinds of stories, uh, things, things stick. So, um, uh, so that's, a, that's kind of my interpretation of the deeper learning movement from my own sort of humanistic angle. One of your design principles that I appreciated the most was insisting on depth over breadth. Um, I thought this was really bold and not something I hear all the time, even as someone who's kind of talking to people in this community, because it, it doesn't take you long to figure out, well, if you're doing depth over breadth, some things are going to be left out. And someone's going to care about the whatever is left out. Um, so this presents, you know, challenges. Um, how do we convince our colleagues or students or parents that it's okay to spend more time on this instead of that? And it can also be challenging for teachers internally. If they're trying to make this shift, then, uh, you know, the longer you've been teaching and the more you're teaching kind of one subject, you grow attached. Um, to things you've taught before. Um, and so uh, making changes in practice can be hard, even if we intellectually agree with the change we're trying to make. And so, um, I was wondering if, uh, if you had to kind of let go of some things you had hoped to teach in order to do deeper learning, um, with, with something else, how have you seen others weigh this sort of trade off? Yeah, the, I, I find that, um, you're right, Trevor, it's the single hardest, the single biggest impediment uh, to going in this direction is, is the fact that it requires a letting go mm-hmm. of, of stuff that, um, and you're right, there's a lot of stuff that's out there that's important and, and can be valuable to learn. Um, but we only have, you know, this certain number of years and this certain number of months per year. And, um, I just found that my teaching practice got better and better when I basically learned how to edit. <laughs> I'm a, I, I really, uh, I love the, the, the level of design uh, around building a course, you know, that nine, 10 month, 10 month journey. Um, what's going to be accomplished within that? What are students going to know that they've accomplished by the end? How is everything getting synthesized together? These are things that, that performance and project-based learning make it fun to think about course design. But you're absolutely right. The, um, the idea of covering a lot um, just left, I think, myself and the students unsatisfied by the end. And so when, when, a, when a course can get distilled, you know, I like to say no more. You should be able, a, a student should be able to describe what they're getting out of course with, you know, with no more than the, the number of fingers on one hand. They should mm-hmm. be able to say, oh, we're, this year we're learning this, this, and this. I mean, I think even two to three things is, is even the most crisp. Um, and there's a lot that, you know, you can still cover in that sense, but when, when everything is getting built and focused on uh, a given small number of skills, then you just start to hang the content on top of that. But, I, but let me give an example. Like I, I, I taught some middle school 
Um, and I just had, I love just being a teacher of writing and I find that, that middle school is a particularly great, um, arena for just focusing on the craft of writing. And I, I, I built a seventh grade course that really just focused on sentence and paragraph craftsmanship. Um, there was all kinds of content standards we hit, you know, as, as part of that, uh, including, you know, grammar and, and, and also certain reading standards, et cetera. But everything was filtered through becoming a better crafter of, of the sentence and paragraph. The whole course, if you ask the students what the whole course was about, that was it. And that allowed everything, whether we were reading a novel to working on a grammar exercise, um, for the students to kind of apply it to that, that tiny set of skills. And then, of course, at the end, like the students had to put together a portfolio of their writing and show their growth. And most of the course grade sort of was about that portfolio. And, you know, we worked on descriptive writing and um, there was just student writing on the walls all the time and we're unpacking sentences. all the- So there's, it allowed us to just have a set of routines. When you, when you trim the number of things that are important, it also creates time for revision, which none of us give enough time for. Um, and, and then you really can look at the end of the year, you and the students, and it's just so clear that we made progress. And it's, and the reason we're so clear is because we didn't try to do everything. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, you know, it does, it's true that that makes it really important that a, a given learning community, whether it's an elementary school or a middle school or a high school, if you really are going to have people trimming in that way, then people need to be talking to each other about how the courses are, are vertically aligned, right. Or articulating from one year to the next. So it it creates a need for, there is risks in it. Of course, like, man, like the sophomore teacher has completely condensed his or her course to this. And the junior teacher focused on that. And there's a big gap between the two. So the teachers need to be talking to each other. No question, which is why the book really argues for what we call a performance assessment system, right? Like that, that, that the teachers, when they collaborate vertically, should be establishing what are the challenges, what are the key challenges of each given year that distill and synthesize these key skills, and are we making sure that there's not big gaps and that it feels like it's one step to the next for the student experience, Um but uh, there's no question, though, that that I think everybody should be able to what I call do a napkin syllabus, right? Like you can, it's like the elevator pitch or the business plan stuff, right? You can scrawl out on a napkin the key the key focus of a course is a, is a, actually an exercise that I even do when I'm on the road working with working with schools. Um, well, I th- I think traditionally. Um you know, there's been value for, for deep learning, but people have thought the place for that is in college. And, um, in order to go deep in higher education, you need the breadth of your, your primary and your secondary experience. And now people are beginning to kind of rethink that and we can do, um, depth over breadth in high school. But, uh, I'm wondering, um, do those same people who advocate that in high school or in middle school also think, that uh, student success requires some breadth in elementary school or some uh, kind of background experience they get from home. And so I'm just wondering if you would frame the choice between breadth or depth any differently for teachers in, in younger grades. Huh, that's a, yeah, that's good. You know, I actually, my son's in uh, kindergarten now. And uh, so I'm just on the, on the, on the curve of, of, uh, I've always been a secondary teacher and haven't been trained in elementary, but I'm now, of course, experiencing it as a parent. And what I'm observing, Trevor, confirms what I had thought from a distance. Uh, we're having a great year with a great teacher, so I'm not, you know, I can't say this happens, you know, everywhere. But I almost feel like elementary, uh, we in secondary education have a lot to learn from elementary teachers. <laughs> um, there's a number of things they've been doing intuitively and well, not intuitively, they've been doing through careful <laughs> uh, design, um, but also, uh, you know, received 
institutional practice that that uh, we can learn. For example, I see a lot of, of uh, project-based learning techniques that have that happen very organically in the elementary level. Um, certainly, a lot of performance assessment. Um, this this focus on you know what students are doing and what you know. There's a focus on skills that I see in, on my student on my my son's kindergarten report card. Um, and I'm imagining that's going to continue at least for the next couple few years. So in some ways, what I, what I, what I like about what I see at the elementary level is that there may be sometimes where they're trying to tackle too many things, too many skills, but at least it seems to me like there's an understanding of the proper relationship between skills and content uh, mm-hmm. at the elementary level. Um, now that, that distinction between skills and content is is often breaks down when you look at actually real stuff, right? Like telling time, <laughs> right? right? <laughs> is 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 a, a combination of of content and skills, right? And and if you really were to look at most of the things we need to learn, you're going to see that most things have that blend. Mm-hmm. But um, but it is. Um, but there is this uh, thing about elementary school where there is an understanding that at the end of the day, telling time really is better characterized as a skill than, than, than a set of content. And, and, then, and then once you realize that's the goal, you start designing the journey to success for that mm-hmm. goal. Um, so I feel like there's an organic process of what I see in elementary education that um, uh, works for human beings. And no surprise, I suppose, that, that statistically elementary education is where America is more competitive with, with the world. Hmm. Um, and things start to break down for us a little at middle and high school, where I think we get more into the permit exam and less, uh, less with the driving test as kids get older. If we could say on that example of telling time just a bit longer, like I think being able to read a clock is really important. Um, but mm-hmm. you know, as, and as someone who's somewhat familiar with project based learning, I'm not sure I could design a project around telling time. Um, but if the project isn't the end unto itself, that the, it's, it goes back to a performance assessment. Um, can we do performance assessments with skills like telling time? Oh, absolutely. Can right. You- like to me, the, the, the truly deep way to really know if someone has mastered telling time could only be accomplished through performance assessment. Um, you, you know, some sort of um, multiple choice test, you know, it still to me serves as a proxy for really knowing if, if that skill can be, you know, fully applied. So it'd be, that's what I love about performance. So now think about, like what would be true evidence that the kid, that a student can uh, tell time? And then you even have a scenario where, um, you know, they're in some sort of situation where telling time is really important. And the only, um, the only thing they have access to is, is, you know, traditional looking clocks. And maybe even that they have to do some even more complex uh, relationship between two points in time. Like you basically know, you basically have to think about what would be something that the student could perform or achieve that really gave me the most solid evidence that um, uh, that they really mastered this skill, and that's why that's why I really believe that performance assessment as a concept should precede um, thinking about project-based learning, um, because that performance assessment really reminds us to get the what's the evidence we seek and, and how are we designing an assessment that gives us that evidence, then you can decide whether project-based learning is mm. the right tool or not the right tool to, um, for that particular journey to success. And you're absolutely right, Trevor. There's lots of things that don't need some sort of full-blown sort of, you know, Buck Institute, eight essential, all eight essential elements of PBL are being hit. I think that overwhelms teachers to think that, when they when they believe that PBL is some that kind of a mandate for everything, I think it shuts down their creativity. And uh, in my course design, I found myself I found the amount of project based learning would would quite naturally ebb and flood 
based on what we needed to accomplish. Uh, that makes total sense to me. I think um, if you're starting from PBL instead of from the performance assessments, um, then you you think, uh, okay, telling time or multiplication, these things are worthwhile, but I don't know how to put those into a project. So now I'm not sure if I should be teaching those things or not, because I thought that everything I was supposed to be doing goes back to a project. And so, so here you're sort of validating other like worthwhile or even essential skills can be included. And uh, the means that you use to teach them can vary as long as it comes back to performance in some, in some way. Yeah. And, and I think what, what PBL can remind us of is that, that, the, that active creation, mm-hmm. we talk a little bit about this in the book, that active creation is oftentimes not every case. So I don't want to oversimplify, but it's a, it's a nice design rule of thumb that, you know, that revised Bloom's taxonomy has creation as the sort of most advanced uh, level of, of sort of cognition around any given, you know, topic or subject or skill, e- even higher than, than the notion of evaluation. And just knowing that sometimes reminded me to take one extra step in, in the different learning journeys that I designed for students, where... Um, and maybe telling time is, you know, let's just use that example again, where, you know, when I was a kid, maybe the unit finished with me going through a four page test of different clock faces. And I'm doing, you know, like I, I get 90% right or whatever. And, uh, that's, you know, that evidence is telling us something, right? It's part of the picture, but, What's one more step I could take that I and the student could take to really bring this to a um, an impressive level, right? Like, this is not just about doing, you know, about, um, I often find that, like, just doing, designing assessments where the result is really going to impress folks who see it. It's just something to aim for. And, you know, so maybe after that unit test, you have some experience where the, stu- the student has to, has to, uh, I don't know, even design their own, um, design their own kind of clock where, where they have to, that, that really is forcing them to use all these concepts and, and then you can maybe hit a few other, um, you know, targets along the way, but some sort of active creation or construction or application that, um, takes it one more step and, and really gives you the full picture that the student is understanding this in a deep way. And, that may not be a project, a full-blown project, but I do feel like there's an, what PBL does sort of remind me of is the importance of that active creation, that last step in Bloom's taxonomy. Um, mm. But I, but it starts with performance assessment, absolutely. And, and I like thinking about it, it with Bloom's taxonomy. Um, I, I think you know, with that, the, the worksheet tests with all the pictures of the clock, we tend to assume that um, if you can get a 90% on that, it's going to transfer. But we don't know unless we try. And I'm also kind of hearing you describe performance assessments over and over again with these examples, and they just sound more engaging. And so, like, if you're in a a space where you're being encouraged as a teacher to design assessments like this, like, why wouldn't you do that? That sounds like more fun to me as a teacher, and I know that my students are going to enjoy that a lot more too. Yeah. I mean, I, I, uh, the, the performance assessment mindset, um, is, uh, just a fun one to, to be in. I, I think it's, I, and, and you start to apply it with everything. Like I, um, um, I saw my, 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 my son is, uh, learning how to ski and, and I was visiting with some friends and their kids had just been to a ski school and, it was this really neat sort of rubric that they used at the end where they gave the students some feedback on, on aspects of their scheme. And, um, and I just really, it was smart design where it would basically this instructor had said like, okay, by the end of this course, you're going to be able to um, go down that hill right there, mm-hmm. you know, and it looks overwhelming at first. Um, but then they spend, you know, a couple few weeks, like breaking down the different concepts and, and, uh, and then by the end, they kind of come back to that hill and, 
the students now look at it with, with, with confidence and they can see, but it, it all has to be put together into one singular performance where all those different skills of like using your poles and edging and, and, um, um, you know, getting your, your, your hips in the right thing to, to, to swing, swing around on a steep hill, all that stuff kind of comes together in a singular performance. And to me, that's what's fun about performance assessment is what, what is the culminating challenge that would bring everything we've learned together into something um, singular? And when you do that, when you bring it into something singular, that's what allows the learners to tell a story mm. about it. And, and that's, that's why performance, good performance assessment design so beautifully um, taps the way that humans organize their experience. And then you're not just having, this is not just a cognitive uh, uh, um, improvement that's been made, or it's not just, it's not just purely an intellectual journey. What's beautiful about having that culminating challenge that where things bring together is that it also it becomes an emotional experience for the learner. And and when you marry the intellectual and the emotional into something that, that, that's fused like that, man, that's learning right there. And, and people will tell that story um, for the rest of their lives. And I think that, 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 that that's not something that, 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 that is accidental. I think if there's one thing about the, the thesis of the book, it's that you know, we all have those times we look back on our education and certain things were memorable. And I maintain that they were memorable because we had that point where the intellectual and the emotional really came together. And our thesis in the book is that that can happen more often than it does if you, if you, um, if you're deliberate about it. It's not a guarantee. You know, we're all, you know, we're all humans on our own. <laughs> you know, we all bring our own different emotions to every given day. But you can certainly increase the frequency of that spike in intellectual and emotional occurring, like overlaid on each other, almost on a chart, happening at the same time. And that's kind of what I uh, look at as my uh, my goal as a designer. And and in the book, uh, you have chapters devoted to transforming school culture and school systems, because ultimately students are going to be most successful if they're getting these experiences in all of their classrooms. And so I was, I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about implementing these kinds of practices on a school-wide level. What's involved in that? Sure. And, and this allows me to actually chat about something that I, that I wanted to sort of talk more about earlier when you, when you talked about sort of what's, where is Envision's particular um, particular area of expertise within this larger deeper learning movement. And, and I would um, characterize that as our portfolio defense system. Um, a lot of the book talks about this notion of having our students at certain key points. For us, it's currently 10th and 12th grade. Students have to stand up with a big public presentation. Sometimes it can be up to an hour in length where they defend their readiness to move on to the next stage, whether it's, you know, upper classes or, or um, beyond high school. And they use evidence of their own work, work that they've reflected on. Um, they basically defend the claim that I'm ready to move on, and they, and they map the evidence to that claim of their own work. Um, that's a big, you know, structure in our schools and something we've become known for just because we've been doing it for a while. Um, and when people come to see our schools, that's something that when they see students make these presentations, it's very impressive. Um, and so a lot of my work in Envision Learning Partners is not just generalized deeper learning. You, you asked me about my role as a deeper learning coach. I think I got off that track a little bit, but more particularly, my, most of my work is in helping um, schools and districts um, tinker with and, and create and design and iterate on some kind of a portfolio defense system. They come in lots of shapes and sizes. Um, 
I bring this up in answer to your last question because this is one of our school structures that we see as a really key lever for um, a whole bunch of other things, including culture, including, um, you know, getting teachers to kind of talk with each other cross in cross-disciplinary ways and really attend to what are students doing well, what are they not doing well enough, and we wanted to, you know, do better at, at giving them more practice with. Um, when typically you have panels of teachers that sit and, and um, with a vetted rubric and uh, basically assess the student presentation, um, what's beautiful about it is that it's not, you know, graded like, oh, you got an A, B, or C. It's, it's basically like you passed your portfolio presentation or you haven't passed yet. And, and there's a resubmission process with a lot of great coaching and feedback. And basically almost all the students are able to go through this rite of passage and succeed uh, generally by their second attempt. Uh, and, and almost everyone by their third attempt. But it's just become, it's an example of a, of a sort of school design structure that has powerful ripple effect in terms of culture, um, the social emotional journey that I was, Todd was talking about earlier, um, the awakening of student academic identities, um, teachers, it recalibrates many teachers thinking about, um, growth mindset, for example, because they see this powerful revision cycle happening and that can spill back into their, their own work back in their classroom. There's just all these sort of wonderful um, benefits that emerge with, with what I call, and basically it's just performance assessment, right? It's basically establishing a school-wide, you know, challenge mm. at certain key moments where the student is now even synthesizing the various um, skills across the different courses and projects and, 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 uh, content that that student has learned. Um, so it's just kind of one more higher altitude performance assessment that becomes a theory of everything for a given school. Um, and then we map backwards from that and, you know, things don't change overnight at a school once you just have the kids do these presentations. Um, but it can begin powerful, um, dialogue, Students tend to really, it shifts the way students see their school. It's like, I'm not ready when I have 125 credits. I'm ready when I, when I put together this evidence and pass this presentation. That's a, that's a much more concrete a way to communicate to students what their purpose is than that abstraction of a, a, some seat time that added up to 120 some odd credits. Um, so there's, so that would be the first thing I would, that the book really goes into um, the, the, the bringing the structure and culture together with a school-wide performance assessment system, which for us typically um, is, is uh, formulated as, as a portfolio defense. Well, Justin, unfortunately, we've, we've taken up a lot of your time. Um, so I'll just ask you one more question, and that's uh, what are you working on now and how can we follow that work? Thank you, Trevor. We, right now, um, you know, we're Envision Learning Partners, um, which, which I said earlier is this, um, small consulting branch of Envision and where I am, I am a coach. We are really learning that our expertise is around this idea I was just talking about, the portfolio defense system. Maybe a more generalized way to talk about that is uh, a performance, a school-wide performance assessment system. And now that we're that we're learning that that's really our expertise, um, we're learning what that means. We're, we're starting to develop our own set of principles around what what is the best practices around portfolio good portfolio defense design. Um, what's essential versus what is can be uniquely expressed uh, based on the school community. Um, we've all, we've had these hunches, but now that we're doing the work across many different schools and different states, it's helping us articulate that and get better at what we do. So I think you're, you're going to see Envision Learning Partners in the same way that, you know, say the Buck Institute for Education has really focused so much on project-based learning and trying to uh, 
describe what that means and what are the best practices. I think you're gonna, we're going to see vision learning partners really um, be at the forefront of, of this great new movement around portfolio defense and um, uh, really helping people understand what it is and why to do it and what are the, what are the principles of best practice. So I think it's going to be exciting uh, years ahead for Envision Learning Partners as we really uh, get focused on that and and help people with what I think is a really powerful agent for school transformation. I, I'm a huge fan of using portfolios in schools. So I, I'm really pleased to hear that you'll be spending so much more time um, on that work. Justin, I want to thank you for being on the show today. Thanks, Trevor. It's such a pleasure um, to talk with a fellow deeper learner about this work. I appreciate uh, the opportunity. All right. Thank you so much.